If you're like me and you're on a reading plan, sometime in the spring you get to 1 Chronicles in your reading plan, whether it's a linear read left to right through the Bible or the chronological plan or the McChain plan or something else like that. It's about this time in the year where you get to the Chronicles. And you find yourself at the beginning of 1 Chronicles and you start reading these genealogies. And they're making their way through all of the tribes of Israel and they start with the son of Jacob, the particular son of Jacob, and they, they go through this big giant tree. And you're on your reading plan and you're thinking, this is taking a long time and all of these are names that aren't very meaningful to me and I wasn't there so I don't know. And, and uh, what's the real benefit of reading through nine chapters of genealogy? Ever had that experience? I've had that experience. You're reading through and you're going, you know, uh, this is scripture, this is inspired, I know that. Um, but this is a real slug to get through this. It's, I need to plow through this. And, uh, you know, the narrative is going to pick up in chapter 10 again, and we're going to read how Saul dies, so it's going to get exciting again. Um, so what I want you to do is just look at the first eight chapters of First Chronicles. And you look through it, and it starts with one tribe and goes through the genealogy of that tribe, and it moves to the next tribe, goes through the genealogy of that tribe, the next tribe, and so on. And this is not the only genealogy in Scripture. So you're wondering, you know, I've, I've read some of this before. I've read the genealogy of Adam to Noah, and Noah to Abraham, and Abraham to Jesus, or whatever, and to David, and so forth. So why do we need another genealogy? We've got eight chapters of names. And um, if you're running short on ideas for names for your children, <laughs> here are some ideas. You don't need to go with them, but... They can be part of the conversation. Okay, so um, you read that and you see this and you think, well, why are they all there? Let's go to chapter 9 in First Chronicles and we'll see why. Let's look at verse 1. Okay, and so this is very helpful because it's going to help us understand the context. And the context is this. All Israel was recorded in genealogies in verse 1. And these are written in the book of the kings of Israel. And Judah was taken into exile in Babylon because of their breach of faith. So you read the last part of verse 1, and you can see that it's in the past tense. Judah was taken into exile in Babylon because of the breach of their faith. So that tells you a little bit about the time frame of this. This is on the other side of the exile, looking back. So this is approximately 450 to 500 B.C. And what you see is that genealogy that was written to Israel after they returned from exile. A very small portion, a very small remnant of Israel returns from exile, from 70 years of exile in Babylon. We see here why they were in Babylon. Um, because of the breach of their faith, they violated God's commands and God's laws serially, repetitively. And God said, I'm going to discipline you and take you away. He promised that he would do that, and he did that. So the first thing we need to understand about this book that we're reading here when you're in your reading plan is that it is written 500 years after the other chronicles, the Kings and First and Second Samuel. When you read First and Second Samuel, those were written by one of the prophets who was contemporary with King David and King Solomon because it's recording those events in real time. It was very important that Israel be established and Israel be known as a strong kingdom with a, a godly king and all of that. And that was very important because Israel was just coming together and having a king. They'd never had a king before. But when you read this, you read the Chronicles, you're on the other side of this and you're looking back and you are it's best to put yourself in the shoes of Israel who returns from the exile. And most of these people were not 70 years old. 
They were less than 70 years old who returned because they were the only ones who could make the trip. So they had never been in Israel before, most of these people. Very few had, and very few of them were old enough to even appreciate what was in Israel before they were carried away. So they really didn't know. So when you read this genealogy, it tells you all about all the sons of every tribe in Israel. We look at it, and we look back at it in time, and we see that one, and we see all the other genealogies. And it looks the same to us, but to the Jew who returned from exile, this was very important. Because God wanted to communicate one major thought to them. I am still your God. You are still my people. I am still going to be faithful to the covenant that I gave you. That helps you understand why he says, there are 12 tribes here. And each one of these has a genealogy, and it's very, very important. And you see some, some names that, that are familiar and some names that are significant in their history. What that does is that helps us when we're reading through this in our reading plan. And you read through this, and now you have eyes of why things are written the way they are in the Chronicles and how they're different from in the Kings and in, in First and Second Samuel because they're written to post-exile Israel. They don't have the priestly system that's working as well as it was before. They don't have a, a gorgeous tabernacle and a temple that was built after that that was wonderful. They don't have all of those things. They have this dinky little temple that was supposed to do the same thing, but it was by no means a comparison at all. And so when you're reading through First and Second Chronicles, put yourself in the shoes of post-exile Israel. If you look at verse 2, you can see who it is exactly who came back. Verse 2 of chapter 9. Now the first to dwell again in their possessions in the city were Israel, the priests, Levites, and the temple servants. So you can see that this is talking about people who have come back, and they're back in Israel after the exile. And it's very, very important they have every bit and as much understanding as they can of what God's original design for them was, because most of these, again, were born back in, out in exile in Babylon, and they have no idea of how things are supposed to work. So a lot of the genealogy, the genealogy does run through all the tribes, but much of it focuses on Levi and what their purpose was. Because they didn't have a priestly system that was up and running in Babylon. And now they have one when they're back here. So they need to know and they need to understand how to follow this and how to live under this rightly. So what I want to do is have you see two different accounts of the same story. One that's recorded in 2 Samuel and one that's recorded in 1 Chronicles. And those two accounts are describing the same event, but I want you to see that there's a distinction in the way that they're described because of who they're being written to. So if you have your Bible, let's go turn our attention to 2 Samuel chapter 5. And this is where David has now become the king over Israel. He was king for seven years in Hebron, and then he was king for 33 years in Jerusalem. And so this writing here... Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 5 is after David has consolidated his rule. He's, he's established himself in Jerusalem. He's got tons of kids. And he begins to be known throughout the region as the king of Israel. He's powerful. The Lord has blessed him. And what happens here is the Philistines come up in 2, Kings chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 5. And they come up to attack. In verse 19, David inquires of the Lord and says, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them over into my hand? The Lord says, Go, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. Verse 20 uh, describes the victory that they have. It's, it's an abundant victory, and they shatter the Philistines. Verse 21 tells you what they do with the idols that the Philistines left behind. They there at the beginning of verse 21 is the Philistines. They abandoned their idols there in the battlefield. 
So David and his men carried them away. The emphasis here is, again, this was written contemporary to David by one of David's prophets, the prophets to Israel in that time. The emphasis here is, the Lord is with David, the Lord is with Israel. Israel is ascending as a regional and a world power. And so the emphasis is on David's success. And so in verse 21, he talks about the idols, and it just modestly says, David and his men carried them away. Let's go to the First Chronicles account of that that's written 500 years later, and it's written to post-exile Israel. It's the same story. It's in First Chronicles chapter 14, just a few chapters after where we were earlier. First Chronicles chapter 14, uh, same story, verse 10, David inquires of God, and this story is now writing about history that's 500 years old. Shall I go up against the Philistines? Same thing. Will you give them into their hand? The Lord says the same thing. The historical account is accurate. Let's read verse 12. This is very important. They, again, as the Philistines, they abandoned their gods there. So David gave the order, and they, the gods, were burned with fire. The audience to whom this author is writing, it's probably Ezra, is writing to a people who've never really lived in Israel before. They've lived in Babylon their whole lives, where there was all kinds of pagan gods, false gods. And it was so important that Israel understand that when they got back here to the Promised Land, even though it was just a remnant, and even though they had a dinky little temple instead of the Solomon's Temple, that they have no idolatry in their life. So you can see the emphasis here is on what they actually did with the idols. They burned them with fire. And so... What I wanted to do this morning is just help you understand that, that when you're reading through the... I had always kind of looked at First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles. It's all kind of the same story about the same thing. It was just written several times over, and I never really understood why. But it was in my reading plan, so I just plow through it, and it's all good. Um, this helps us have meaning and understanding when we see that the Chronicles were written in hindsight. They were written to post-exile Israel. And when you're plowing through those eight or nine chapters of genealogies, this helps you understand why. Because they need to know that um, God has the same covenant. He's a covenant-keeping God for Israel. So I hope that's helpful to you guys. If you get to your point in your reading plan where you're navigating your way through the Chronicles, you don't have to memorize every one of those names that are in those genealogies. You don't need to know who was the son of who and who had who. But what you need to see in the big picture there is what God is telling Israel. He's saying you are still... My people, you are still the tribes of Israel. You still have land, even though I took you away from it for for 70 years. So I hope that's helpful. I I really, truly hope that is helpful to you guys. And it's a blessing to you guys when you you get to that point in your reading plan. Um, Just look for the big picture in those genealogies and look for what God is telling Israel more than the, the names and the fathers and the mothers and the sisters and brothers and everything like that. Yeah, let's take your Bibles and let's get them ready and take your, if you don't have one of the study sheets, you'll need to have one of them. Um, and I don't know where those are. Those outside? If you, know, if you need to step out there and just do that, feel free to grab what you need because we're going to, we got a, a truckload is a, is a good uh, description of what we're going to do today, Lord willing. So uh, please make sure you just have that and are ready to write. Why don't we pray? Let's ask um, God's help as we just think about how to rightly read and study his Bible. Okay. Father in heaven, we thank you for 
um, your Bible. Thank you so much for giving to us um, communication that reveals you. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would um, help us to think rightly about how we can control ourselves as we um, read and study your word. Uh, We like it when those who listen to us control themselves with our words and don't do things with them that um, we're not happy with. How much more so, you, the God of all things, our Savior, are you happy when we control ourselves with your words? So Lord, draw near to us, help us, help me to make these things clear, and uh, may you use this in a way in our own lives that would bring great, greater fruitfulness in our study of your word, and um, Lord, may we um, glorify you in just how we handle your Bible, and we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, guys. Um, I've called this honoring the Lord and controlling ourselves in Bible reading or Bible study. You can take that word reading and do slash study. Um, I don't know if you've ever thought about self-control or not or the need of it in interpreting the Bible. But over the years, I've seen this for me, become more of the, the main issue. If you can get this one idea in your mind about when you approach scripture that I need to control me when I have these words open in front of me, or if I'm reading somebody else who's telling me what this is, I need to be aware of how much self-control they've had with what they're doing with the Bible. You're going to get over a mountain. That doesn't mean there's nothing else to climb or to figure out in regards to the meaning of the text, but um, self-control is a huge issue. Um, think about this when, when you read the Bible or when you're studying the Bible, there seems to be endless temptations in your mind to run away from the words on the page to other ideas. That takes self-control. Um, other things that you've learned before, other concepts that are taught in a book that you've read, your own experience, maybe even other Bible passages. I mean, have you ever done that? I've done this a lot. I've been reading in a you know passage and all of a sudden going, oh, oh, and I you know turn my page to the next one. And I'm not saying any and all of that is wrong, but what I'm saying is um, we need to be very careful about staying on the page not leaving the page too soon and running to other words, even others of God's words until we've heard these words right here. And to do that takes a lot of self-control. The next thing we know, if we start in one passage and a half an hour later, we're off thinking of other things and, um, you know, working through those different experiences, our own minds, we've left the words on that page a long time ago and we've arrived at a foreign destination that doesn't even really resemble anymore the passage we were originally studying. I mean, what would you think of someone doing that to your own words? Imagine you wrote a, a, a love letter to your wife. And um, they had your letter in their hands. And they started with your words. Um, but then perhaps they were reminded of a scene in a movie and and, and that the romance and the love that was in that movie starts to engage their mind and they run with that idea of love and they, and and finally where they end up with your words actually had very little to do with your original words to your wife all while they were holding your words in their hand 
it would be right for you at that point to say to that person, um, would you please control yourself with my words? Please don't run off somewhere else to get to the meaning of my words. Um, and of course, we need to extend to God the same courtesy whose words and meaning are far more important than any words we'll ever say or write. Correct? So above all, we should control ourselves with his words. Well, how do you do that? How do you control yourself when you're dealing with the Bible? Well, you do that by putting in front of you and around you some guidelines that help restrain you, that keep you not moving about far away from those words, um, that will help you to not quickly leave his words on the page that you're reading or you're stuttering, studying to get to other interesting ideas that are in your head. Um, so the guidelines or rules that we'll look at today, there's 10 of them, can, can help restrain you. There's, there's a lot more that we could talk about, uh, but the 10 that we'll give you will at least help you to restrain yourself as you consider God's words to you. Um, and as Scott even talked about at the very beginning, when you study, number one, you can see it there, prayerfully position yourself under the God of the word. This is the prayer, and I printed it out for you in your, home, in your uh, handout. You have this on another sheet somewhere probably in your notebook, um, but I wanted to put it in. I didn't want to just refer you to it, but I, I want to just look at some of this. Um, th- this is a sample prayer. This is not the prayer. It is a sample prayer, right? Um, that reflects the kind of heart attitude that a believer should have toward the reading and the studying of God's word. Um, hopefully, just for you, it serves as an example of the, the kind of desire for self-control um, before God and his word that you need to have. So here's a way to discipline or control yourself to be first and foremost a worshiper as you are reading and studying. If you're going to come to the Bible to try to get God's meaning, but you're not going to be a worshiper, a prayerful worshiper, um, you're, you're missing out on really the heart of what's going on. Um, so here's some parts of that. I'm not going to read through all of it, but I want you to, to refresh your minds with this. Again, this is a sample. This is, this is not where, uh, what you must pray, but it's these kinds of things. It, let this be like a, an encouragement to you to think of similar things as you can pray better prayers than this. Um, I intend this time in your word to be a prayerful expression of worship of you, an expression of desire for you, I want, as I'm coming to the Bible, to um, let this be an expression of my love for you. I want to express my need for you, my dependence on you. Um, your word tells me that uh, as God, you are set apart from creation and holiness. You're so high above all things and sovereign in your reign over all things, including my life. Yet how tenderly you stoop toward your creatures to show love and compassion and countless kindnesses. You're perfect Um, provision sustains all that you have made and glorifies your great name. You are worthy to be worshiped. And I desire to see more of you in your word. The idea in in that kind of the part of the prayer is I'm going to look away from myself and just notice how great you are. Yes, you've taken care of me and I have wonderful things, but I'm not using you. I'm just noticing you for the kind of God you are. I do need you to help me be what you want me to be and to, I need your provision. And I, I'm thinking of me as I come to you, but as I start, I just want to think about you first 
I just want to be worshipful. I just want to empty myself out towards you and acknowledge what you're like. Something like that to start helps you as you're getting ready to, to, to study God's word, to take your eyes off of necessarily all of your needs that you believe you have. And just your greatest need is just to know him, just to notice him. Um, to draw near to him, to, to magnify him. If you get lost, look, we've, got, we've got big needs in our lives, each one of us. If you forget about them in your worship of him, you might find yourself coming back to your needs thinking, that wasn't as big as I thought it was. Or he met that need in a way that in my worship of him that I wasn't even expecting. We, we don't want to leapfrog over that just to get the little nugget that I've got to be able to walk away with to go tell somebody else what to do or tell myself what to do. I need that nugget too, but not at the expense of worshiping. So the next part of the little paragraph there at the beginning, my pursuit of you through your word and prayer is only possible through your son, Jesus Christ, who is my savior. So I approach you through him, my substitute and high priest. The one whom I love but have not yet seen. We just want to acknowledge at some point as you're opening up in your prayer to study God's word, that the only way that you are even able to have a conversation with God is because of Jesus and what he's done. All right? And then you need to have a good answer to this question. Why have I prayerfully come before you? Why is my Bible open? Why am I here, God? So you're wiping the sleep out of your eye. You're taking another sip of your coffee in the morning. You're trying to stay awake. And you need to have a good answer to this question. Why am I even doing this? And there's probably 50 million excellent reasons. Here are some of them. Number one, I have your Bible open before me. And you need to tell yourself this in prayer and talk to God about this. God, here's why I have my Bible open before me. It's because you revealed yourself there more clearly than any other place. And I long to know you better. I mean, you could go up to South Mountain early in the morning and you could watch the sun come up over the desert. And it would reveal something about God to you. Because creation does. But God has not revealed himself through creation to you like he has through these words. It's not the same thing. Because you didn't look out on the desert and see your need for a savior. But you heard somebody say something in God's word and you realized you were a sinner in need of a savior. And so this is where God has revealed himself most clearly. And um, you must come to just see him. He's revealed himself there. Let's go look for him. That's a reason why you're there. Why have I prayerfully come before you with my Bible open? The second one there. I also have your word open before me because I need to learn more of the nature of my sin and my fallenness before you so that I may better understand what danger I truly was in and what danger still lurk within me through my indwelling sin. I need to see both things here. The sin that provoked your righteous wrath towards your son at the cross in my place. And I need to see your grace that moved you to act as savior toward me. You need to have a, a constant reminder that I'm not in heaven yet. I'm not what I was, but I'm not in heaven yet. And there is an enemy lingering in me still today. And I need to be aware of that. So God, I am here because this Bible is going to tell me so much more of what I need to learn about that. Um, and there's lots of things that are written there in that paragraph. Um, another thing, another answer and your word is open before me so that I may undergird my life again today with your saving heart and motive in the gospel of your son who overcame the penalty of my sin and the power of my sin to enslave me. You want to come to the Bible to remind yourself to preach the gospel to yourself again. Um, there are treasures in the gospel that you haven't yet discovered. It'll take you a lifetime to discover all the ones that God wants you to discover. And even then, when you get to heaven, you'll see all of them. 
that you didn't even get to yet. But you need to dig a little bit more and discover a little bit more. Finally, I love, I have your word open before me to study what righteousness and holiness of life looks like for the one who's been made into a new creature. In the new man, you have created not only a desire for obedience, but you've also created a spirit-dependent equipping within. I need to consistently feed those new God-given desires in my new conditions so that they grow. Remember, you are a mixed creature. You have indwelling sin still. It's not your master anymore, but boy, will it try to entangle you if it can. And you have new God-given desires in the new creation in Christ inside you. If every day of your life you do not um, inform yourself of that newness that has come, what makes you think you're going to think about it? Be aware of it. You don't have to do anything to think about sin. It just happens in you. But everything that he has put inside you is more of an uphill climb. That's from him. And you've got to discipline yourself to go look for it, discover it, act on it. So you, if you want to live a, a, a life that's pleasing to the Lord, you're going to have to come and look for it and remind yourself what is pleasing to the Lord so that you have a chance to do it. The last paragraph of that prayer is, I desire my heart and my mind to be full of you because of what these pages reveal to me about you and all of your greatness. I long for you to spill out of me into my home and wherever you lead me today. All who come into contact with me today must interact with one whose heart has drawn near to you and is striving to obey you. Their best hope for salvation, like if it's your kids who don't know the Lord yet, their best hope for salvation or for growth in the gospel will come from one who has searched for you in your word and gazed upon your son in the gospel and who walks by your spirit. Guys, that's the kind of man who needs to study the Bible. So the very first thing is not even so much a, a rule or a guideline about what to do. It is. It tells you what, but it, but it tells you what kind of person you must be as you study. And you don't want to leapfrog over that. You need to be the right kind of man, reading carefully, studying the Bible carefully. And in praying something like this, you're disciplining yourself, you're reining yourself in, you're controlling yourself first and foremost to be a prayerful worshiper, the right kind of man as you study. That doesn't just happen. I'll I'll tell you just for me. I don't just wake up, read the Bible, and find myself being automatically a worshiper of Jesus in it. I have to like tell myself, this is why I'm here. This is why I'm studying. This is what I need. This is who you are. And what I do when I, when I start that way is I find that I'm, I'm, I'm setting the boundaries for myself. Oh, this is where I'm supposed to be. This is who I'm supposed to be. Now, now I'm ready. Now my thinking is more aligned with God's in his word. And now I'm ready to start studying. Does that make sense, guys? When you do that, number two, Expect a single coherent meaning. What I've done is I've taken these um, uh, guidelines over the years, these rules for interpreting the Bible, and I've tried to word them differently than the way they typically are worded. Because I, I, I want it to be fresher. I want it, I want it to be even surprising, in a sense. And um, I want to connect it more with the way that your words work as well, that just the way that language works overall. So when you study, come to the Bible and expect a single coherent meaning. In other words, one meaning and I can understand it. It's coherent. When was the last time you communicated by email, by text, 
by Facebook post so as to not be understood. When was the last time you ever did that? I'm going to communicate now in a way that nobody will understand anything I say. Language doesn't work that way. You don't work that way with language. When was the last time you were not eager for your spouse to understand you, your children to understand you, your boss, your students, your teacher, whoever? And and notice this, guys. And when was the last time you intended to communicate at the same time two equally valid, coexistent meanings from the same set of words? In other words, your wife and your kids can be sitting there and you say one set of words and your wife says, oh, what that means is blah, blah, blah. And your children go, no, 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 no. It's this is what it means. And both of them are valid. Nobody communicates two different meanings with the same set of words. Language doesn't work that way. Now, can interpreters and hearers think of two different things? Yes, happens all the time in this fallen world. But as communicators, even as fallen communicators, we are not capable of communicating two valid, equal meanings from the same set of words. Language doesn't work that way. It just doesn't. We never communicate so that one person hears one set of meaning and another one validly concludes an entirely different meaning from the very same words. Language and communication are gifts from God which allow us to take unseen ideas inside of our heads and clearly expose them before others, one meaning at a time, in one sentence at a time. We all communicate in order to be understood this way. When we speak and when others are talking and we're listening, what are you listening for? I'm trying to get the three different sets of meanings that's coming from this one sentence. No! You're listening for one meaning from that one sentence. And so the Bible can be understood because God meant it to be understood. And this is the way language works. Turn to Isaiah 45, verse 18. Isaiah 45, just a couple of simple verses for you to take a look at. Isaiah 45, verses 18 and 19. Thus says the Lord who created the heavens, he is the God who formed the earth and made it. He established it and did not create it a waste place, but formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is none else. I have not spoken in secret in some dark land. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, Jacob, seek me in a waste place. I, the Lord, speak righteousness, declaring things that are upright. Listen, the Lord expected the offspring of Jacob to understand him because his meaning in his words was not off someplace in a secret land or in an un his meaning wasn't unfindable they had only ever been out in plain sight in front of Israel God's words and his meanings he communicated so as to be understood listen guys the bible is not a spy's communication what does a spy do when he's communicating He makes you look over here with his words, but all the time he really means what? Something entirely different over here. The Bible is not a spy's communication. God is not using words that sound like he's over here, but really it's over here. Language doesn't work that way. Let's go to Deuteronomy 29, 29. 
It's an easy one to remember, 29, 29. If you forget 29, just remember, oh, I have to repeat it again, 29, 29. Deuteronomy 29, 29, great verse to be aware of. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of this law. God has not communicated to us, guys, everything in his mind. Right? Uh, We have a book that reveals so much of what he is, but it doesn't reveal all of who he is. There are still secret things that belong to him. But there are revealed things that belong to man. In other words, God expects that man, um, expects that man understand those things that God has revealed to him. God doesn't hold us accountable to understand what is still secret to him, only what he has revealed. And notice the extent in verse 29 that we are to understand it. How far does our understanding go? It goes all the way to the purpose that we may observe all the words of this law. At least Israel could say that. The revealed things of the law that God gave through Moses were so clear they could actually be obeyed. That means you understand them really well. Because you can do it. Now that doesn't... Yes? Can we ask questions? No, everybody except Tom can ask questions. (laughs) Tom, please ask a question. Absolutely. You know, when we look at verse 29, so when you look at verses, how do you look at that now? Is this verse meant for all generations, or was it written specifically for the Old Testament? Yep. It's specifically written to Israel, um, and what Moses is speaking to Israel in the wilderness in regards to the law uh, the principle that is gen- is still true generally beyond that, that the secret things belong still to God and the things revealed belong to us, and especially to us, the church, because we have a whole newer testament to go along with this older testament. So the principle is true, um, and we are to understand them to the extent that we are to obey the law of Christ and the teachings of Christ. But these words right here specifically were only given to one group of people, uh, the Jews, and not to the Gentiles at that point. Uh, but it's it's helpful to understand in terms of under, thinking the way God communicates and to the extent at which he does communicate. He, 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 can, he intended to, the meaning to be obvious, so obvious that they could obey it. So it's for Israel initially, and then the broader application goes. We're going to actually talk about how you do that, how you apply and think beyond the text. So now that doesn't mean... That everything in the Bible is easy to understand because there's one meaning and it's coherent. What does Peter say about Paul's words in 2 Peter 3, verses 15 and 16? Paul's writings, along with the rest of the scripture, some of those things are hard to understand, right? So we read and we study God's word expecting to discover one coherent message after another. Imagine this. Imagine if you came to the Bible and your thought was, this is a really hard book. I just, it's impossible. To know, who can know this book? But I'm going to try to study anyway. No. Listen, guys, one of the things I, I would want to accomplish today is to demystify the process of understanding the Bible. It's not impossible. It's language. You use language all the time. You expect people to understand what you say. And you understand what people say. And we're broken communicators and receivers. This is not broken communication. How much more can we understand it? We can. Now, you need God's help, but you can. You can understand it. Um, 
So we expect to discover one meaning in each text, not several. You come studying your passage thinking, I'm looking for the one main meaning that's here. That's exactly what we expect of others when we communicate to them. And we count on that and we enjoy together that basic understanding about language. Language just works this way. Above all, we should extend the same courtesy to God in his words. Okay? The Bible can be understood because God meant it to be understood. So discipline yourself to expect that. I come expecting. That doesn't mean you're going to find it. It may take a little work. It may take two or three times, but you should expect it because that's the way language works. Okay? And in so doing, you honor God with your reading of his word. Number three, when you study, hold fast to the normal use of words and language. Hold fast to the normal use of words and language. I find the word normal to be really encouraging. Just the normal way language works, the normal way words work. We read and we study the Bible following the practices that we consider normal for any other important document that you read. When a husband comes home from work, when you come home and there's a note on the counter saying that the light in the hallway is out, you don't go, spiritual darkness is welling up in my house. That's not the normal way that that communication on that little sticky note on the counter works. It just doesn't work that way. Rather, you read the note normally and you walk into the hallway and you unscrew the light bulb and you put another one in. That's the normal way language works. And we read our Bibles the same way. The, this practice that uh, you use to do this has a fancy name. It's called literal, grammatical, historical. And the word literal there has just gotten a bludgeoning over the last couple decades. But with the word literal, just think normal. Literal, literal doesn't mean it is so wooden and inflexible as a word. It can't mean anything else. So Jesus says he's the door, and so he's a door. That's not what literal means. It means the normal use of language. Grammatical just means how the words are connected together. There's grammar that holds them together, how they're related to each other, the words. Historical means context. So I'm going to look at the normal way language works. I'm going to look at how those normally used words fit together. And it all happened in a context. And so I need to do that. By the way, that's what you like people to do with your words. Right? This is what we just use. It's got a fancy name. But just hold fast to this, guys. Don't let go of this quickly. A normal reading or interpretation means that statements are assumed to be normal or literal unless it is evident that the author is using a figure of speech. Let me use that one from John 10. In verses 7 to 10, Jesus um, said, I am the door. We think, here's here's how it works for you. You don't lock yourself into a thing going, oh my goodness, I thought Jesus was a person. But did you know he's wood and he swings on hinges? Your, your language doesn't even do that in your mind. You have the capacity almost intuitively to go, oh, he's doing something with that. And I get it. I get it. So we don't conclude that he's wood and he swings on hinges. We naturally understand our Lord was using imagery in his communication. Our minds intuitively see that normal use of even imagery. It's normal to do that, to speak this way. 
But even when you then interpret a figure of speech like that, it's a good practice to begin with the literal or normal meaning to get the author's point. So wait, what, how does a door function? A real door. How does a real door work? Oh, it can keep out, but it can also open and let in. See, you go to that normal use and that reveals what the purpose is that Jesus is saying. What was Jesus trying to communicate by suggesting his metaphoric resemblance of a door? Well, the literal or normal use of an actual door guides then the meaning of the figure of speech. Jesus is the entrance. He's the gateway to eternal life. And it's also important to understand this, guys. Hold on to this. Don't let go of this. The author and the context get to determine the meaning of any metaphor all metaphors. The author gets to determine it, not the reader. The one reading doesn't get to decide when a metaphor is being used. The author gets to determine when it's being used. Okay? That's very important. The controlling line of authority for the meaning is always in the words on the page, in the context the author was speaking from. Listen, your hearers who are listening you to you talk, they don't get to decide when you're using a figurative uh, being figurative in your speech. They don't get to decide. You get to decide when you are. And if your son, thinking, hearing that you, that you said, I'm, I'm, I'm going to beat the tar out of you, um, you wouldn't say that, but that's the one that popped into my head because I think I heard that a couple times when I was younger. But um, <laughs> he doesn't get to decide if you're being figurative or not. You get to decide if you're being figurative or not. And Lord willing, you are being figurative, but... Um, so anyway, hold on fast to the normal use of language, right? Of words and language. Don't give that up. If you give that up, meaning goes out the window. Meaning can be anything you want it to be. If you don't use a normal um, approach to language. Okay? Number four. When you read and when you study, read the passage or read the book repeatedly to make observations. If you're Studying a little book like the book of Titus, three chapters long, you can sit down and read it in probably less than 10 minutes. Read it over and over and over and over and over. Read it as many times as you can, 30 minutes. Read it once a day for 30 days. Um, if you're doing a, a, a big book like Deuteronomy or Isaiah, uh, break it down into five-chapter sections and read that five chapters over and over and over and then go to the next set and over and over and over. Or if you're studying to preach a passage, Romans 2, 12 to 16, read that over and over and over and over and over. And so here are some sample questions I've given to you um, that can help you read and study scripture carefully. And I've kind of, you'll notice that these questions lie kind of at different levels. There's kind of a macro level, um, like a, a whole level, like the, the, the whole Bible level, the whole book level, or the whole passage level. And then there are some micro levels, like very specific things to look at within the passage. And this is where you're going to spend, guys, the bulk of your time and your reading is, is doing these kinds of things over and over and over. So don't give up too quickly here. One of the biggest challenges to studying the Bible carefully is that you'll want to take your backside out of the chair and go do something else. You, that you won't just stay there. You have to have discipline of yourself enough to say, I'm going to just keep my butt in the chair and I'm not going anywhere. Um, and fruitfulness comes when you do that. So let me show you um, how these... How these uh, 
questions are arranged. I think you see that there have kind of been breaks. That first little section at the top, those, trans, um, those are the kinds of questions that transplant you back into the context. Um, isn't it really helpful when people, you really like it when the one who's hearing you tries to get into your shoes and understand what you're going through. That's nice, isn't it, when people do that with you? I find that with my kids all the time, that um, they want me to agree with whatever it is that they're trying to tell me. They want me on their side to validate whatever it is. They've got that in, in mind, but what I have found it helps them, whether or not I end up agreeing with them or not, is if I actually go and I, and I don't say everything that's on my mind at first, but just listen. And at the end of listening to them say, you know what, wow, I understand that your situation, that, that is hard, that's tough. To go there and sit in their words is helpful in communication. Um, these are the kinds of questions that help you get back into the context of where you're at. What kind of book are you reading? Is it an Old Testament book? Is it a Newer Testament book? Where does it lie in your Bible? Does, why is Leviticus where Leviticus is? And First uh, Timothy is where First Timothy is. What do you know about the author? What do you know about the audience? Are there any important characters named who need to be identified? You're trying to get yourself out of your shoes and back into their sandals, right? That's that first section. The next larger section of questions that kind of are grouped together, these are the um, questions that will help you look specifically at the words and the statements themselves, even thinking about grammar. Uh, Let me highlight a couple of them. Just read the passage over and over again. Okay, try hard to not assume that you know what it says. When you come to a passage that you've known for a long time, um, one of the biggest dangers of getting to the meaning is you come to it going, oh, I know what that means. And you probably do. You're probably not wrong. But you, you've, you've just kind of blocked yourself from being really open to new things that might jump out at you that you've never seen before. And so just read it over and over. Now, read the passage in several other versions. You, you guys are all dealing with English language. Um, so if you've got ESV, use NAS also. Use a New King James Version. Use a Holman Christian Standard Bible. Use um, what, lots of different ones, NIV, and compare them. And where all of a sudden, why, why out of all these four translations I'm looking at, why do three out of the four of them translate that word differently? There must be something going on with that word that I need to get to the bottom of. So you read it in many different versions. What do you think the key words and phrases are? Now this is a really important thing to understand just on this. I'm going to get on this little hobby horse for a moment. Um, it's important to look for key words. Let me ask you this question. When you're communicating to your child and you're giving detailed instructions, who gets to decide in your communication what the key words were? Your child? I heard dad say ice cream. Did you hear that? He said ice cream. Uh, That's probably not the key word in what you were communicating, but that's what you're going to go do when all the other key things are done. Right? So who gets to decide what the key words are in the Bible? In the passage? Is your favorite word the key word? It might be, but don't make that automatic equal sign that your favorite topic in the Bible is the key word in the passage, because it might not be. God gets to decide. Do you see how simple? See, we're trying to... I want you to see how just... If this isn't mysterious. You already know how language works. You use it all the time, and you expect it, and you operate by it. We're just drawing attention to the obvious kinds of things, okay? Um, 
the next section of questions or things to do that are grouped together will help you ask questions or get to the bottom of why is this passage here? How does this passage fit in with what happened before it and what came after it? Let me give you an example. I think this is probably one of the most interesting ones that I've seen in the Bible. Um, I'll take you back to Acts. In Acts chapter 10 and 11, what Peter is doing is Peter is being told that he needs to go to a Gentile's house. His name is Cornelius. And he's told that he needs to go there. Now, the way that he's told that he needs to go there is the Holy Spirit comes and, and gives him a vision in a dream while he's up on the roof waiting for dinner or lunch to be made. Remember this? And sheet comes down and there's all kinds of animals in it. And many of them, according to Jewish law, are unclean. And the Lord says, arise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter's like, uh-uh. I mean, that would be a conflict. I mean, in his mind, in the vision he's seeing, because God, you told me that there are unclean things and there are some in this. And now you're telling me to, I mean, so he's working through all of this. And the, it happened three times to him. And uh, the point was that the spirit was preparing Peter as a Jewish believer in Messiah Jesus. It's time to go to Gentiles who from all appearances to you are unclean. It's time to go to them. And so you have two chapters given to this, chapter 10, and then the retelling of it in chapter 11 when he comes back to Jerusalem and he has to calm everybody down. Okay? So that's what's going on in, in Acts 10 and 11. The gospel must go to the Gentiles. Skip chapter 12 for a moment and jump over to chapter 13. Do you know what happens in Acts chapter 13 all the way to the end of, the, of Acts? Paul's missionary journeys into the Gentile world. Okay? So 10 and 11, Peter being told that the church in Jerusalem needs to be thinking about the gospel going to Gentiles. There's one in particular they're going to go to, Cornelius. Skip chapter 12. Chapter 13, the gospel goes into the Gentile world. Now, here's my question. Acts chapter 12 is about King Herod beheading one of the disciples and imprisoning Peter. But then Peter gets out. And then the king who tried to do that He's a Gentile king, by the way. King who tries to stop the Peter who was told to go to the Gentiles stands up at Caesarea or wherever it was, and um, he is venerated like he's a god, and all of a sudden, uh, worms eat him and he dies. Why is that between chapters 10 and 11 and chapter 13? Why is the demise of a king who tried to kill the apostles. Why is, is that account right there when they were told just before it's time to go to the Gentiles and everything that follows is going to the Gentiles? So you need to be thinking those kinds of questions because it's not going to be written there. And by the way, this chapter in your Bible is here because you, you have to work to find that. But how much richer is your understanding of what's going on if you ask questions like that? And um, you can chew on that yourself and think about what the answer to that question is. All right. So uh, that's number four. Uh, read the passage, the book repeatedly to make observations. How about number five? When you study, when you read, understand the relationships between interpretation and application. This is really, really important. There is an important relationship between interpretation of a text and your, uh, uh, that you're reading and studying and the application of it to the reader's life. Um, and we're going to define those two terms in just a moment, but let me illustrate it for you. Uh, interpretation and application are like two runners on a relay team. Okay? 
Runner one is not the same person as runner two. They are different, but they're on the same team. They're trying to accomplish the same things. Runner one goes and does only what runner one can do. And then at some point, runner two gets the baton, picks up after the end of that. And runner two does only what runner two can do. Runner one doesn't try to do what runner two does. And runner two doesn't try to do what the first leg was doing. They each have their own place, but one goes and then the next one goes. Interpretation is runner number one. Application is runner number two. You don't want to mix these things up. If you mix them up, you ruin it. (laughs) And you don't like it when people mix that up in your life either. Uh, So what are we talking about? Interpretation is this. Interpretation is the understanding of the truth intention of the author. It's the understanding of the truth intention of the author. Maybe to put it a different way. Interpretation finds the meaning, keyword meaning, interpretation finds the meaning the author intended. Okay? When you see the word meaning, you think interpretation. And I'm going to give you a really bad example of what believers uh, commonly do with the word meaning. We misuse it. Um, but when you see the word meaning, you think of interpretation. Okay? Then the word application, let's talk about that. Application, that's runner number two, right? Application is the various ways that one needs to live in light of that meaning. The various ways that one needs to live in light of that meaning. Okay? They're not equal. They're related, but they're not equal. And you can't put runner two ahead of runner number one. Okay? So let me give you a sloppy use of language that mixes these things up, okay? Maybe you've even found yourself kind of swept up in this before. I know I have before. Um, uh, let me give you an example from John fifteen twelve. 12. Uh, Jesus is in his last night with his disciples. Um, there's only 11 of them left. Uh, Judas excused and was sent out in chapter 13. And Jesus says this very simple statement to his 11 disciples love one another. Now let's say that um, a believing wife reads that and she's thinking about how things have gone with her husband lately. And a a wife studying that might think in response, that means I need to love my husband better. That means I need to love my husband better. We can understand and, and, and imagine Christians talking that way, right? But which way that word means, meaning, what is it supposed to be tied to? Interpretation. Interpretation. Okay, so just hold on to that. But is that really what Jesus meant in John 15, 12? As he speaks to his 11 disciples. Or has the wife confused how she believes that her life must change in light of what Jesus means? In John 15, 12. If her view of what that passage means, I need to love my husband better, then she's probably going to get upset when other women in the church apply that same meaning. And they're trying to love her wife better, or her husband better. I mean, it's, it's absurd. But it's a, it's a good <laughs> illustration of how it's just a sloppy use of the word means. What would have been a better word to use? <clears throat> Applies. 
This applies to me, right? Misspeaking this way actually then opens the door. I mean, if you're sitting in a Bible study now and, and one person, you hear this woman say, I read John 15, 12, and, and, and what this passage means is I need to love my husband better. And one Christian's going, that's not what I got when I studied it. And so then they jump on the sloppy language bandwagon. And then that Christian says, well, that's what that passage means to you. But what it means to me is, and now all of a sudden, we're talking about two different meanings in one set of words. And is that the way that language works? It never works that way for you. And it doesn't work that way for God. Jesus does not mean that this woman needs to love her husband better. But this other Christian, also equally valid meaning, needs to love his son better. Those are two different meanings. There's one meaning with two different applications. So see, you've got to get your language working right and using the right terms. Jesus is the only one who means anything in those words. The reader doesn't mean anything. The reader's trying to find the one meaning of Jesus and then turn it into application. Remember, guys, when was the last time you communicated two different sets of meanings from the very same set of words? God doesn't do that. You don't do that. Nobody does that when they're writing or speaking. Um, Your job is to work hard to carefully think of and discover the one meaning and then think of all of the different implications that come from that. Okay? Um, Here's what Joel James says about the relationship between these two. I have an example for you, another one to use. Let's turn to Romans chapter 12. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Scott, can we maybe go out and click on the AC, get some air flowing maybe a little bit? Thank you. That'll help us understand the meaning. Yes. Principle number five, B, uh, stay awake while you study. (laughs) That's really helpful to find the meaning. Uh, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Here's what Joel James said. Interpretation and application must always be kept separate. That's what we've been saying. They they have to be kept separate. So as you're studying... Here's how you can, something that will help you get to interpretation. Rewrite in your own words those two verses. Rewrite them and start every sentence with this. Paul said, by the way, Paul wrote Romans. Paul's writing to the Roman believers in the first century. So Paul said, because what does that discipline you to do? Oh, these aren't just anybody's words. These are my words. I can't make them mean what I want them to mean. But Paul spoke them. And so I'm going to find out, I'm going to just think about what Paul said. Paul said, so you might say, Paul uh, said to the Romans um, to present their bodies a living and holy sacrifice. Paul said that in doing so, it is acceptable to God. Paul said that that is their spiritual service of worship. 
Paul commanded them to not be conformed to this world. Paul said instead they need to be transformed by the renewing of their mind. Paul said that that proves what the will of God is. Paul said that is that will of God is good and acceptable and perfect. When you do that, you're getting at the meaning. You're getting at the interpretation that is there. Okay? And then... From that interpretation, you can develop appropriate applications for your specific situation. So let me give you another bad uh, example. Do not be conformed to this world, verse 2. Here's a wrong approach. To me, that means that we shouldn't watch cable. Shouldn't watch cable. That's what it means to me. Um, In fact, this verse means, as I think about it now, all cable is actually really like evil. And, in fact, if you have a cable subscription, you might not even be a Christian. I mean, that is what Paul said to the Romans. I mean, mean, that's so absurd. But listen, Christians talk this way. We just do. And it's terrible. It's terrible. Notice how all of that was just one big swirled, mixed up mess. Number one, I used the wrong word. This verse means that you shouldn't watch cable. No, it doesn't mean that. That's the implication you walk away with, the conviction that you felt for your own heart, right? And then you push it all back on Paul. That's what Paul said, you know. What's the right approach? Interpretation. Paul said to the Roman believers that they should not follow the same patterns of thinking of the world or the way that unbelievers think. That's what Paul said. Application. Something that influences me to think like the world is when I watch stuff on cable that I shouldn't watch on cable. So to keep from being conformed to that worldly thinking, um, I need to be more discerning about what I watch on cable. In fact, you know what I'm going to do for the next month? I'm just not going to watch cable at all. Now, two very crisp, different steps taken. Interpretation first then I thought of how I need to be thinking about that. And I'm not imposing what I'm going to do in light of that back on Paul's words and say that's exactly what Paul said. Because I'm not going to watch cable for a month. Paul didn't say, and, verse 2, don't watch cable for a month. That's not what he said. Now, it's connected, but it's not what he meant, right? Two crisp, clear, distinct steps. First, what did Paul mean? Then, how should my life change? What Paul said and what Paul meant for the Romans is related. By the way, a a believer in Pakistan who just was kicked out of his family and he's wondering if um, the mosque is going to come get him. And he reads, do not be conformed to this world. Do you think he's going to be thinking about cable TV? Mm -hmm. That's not what it means. That's how it applies for one Christian in one part of the world. But it may not be how it applies to another Christian. So one meaning and what can come from that. Many different applications, right? One interpretation can lead to many legitimate applications. You just need to make sure that you do what first? Find the one meaning, right? Okay, discipline yourself. Do you see that takes self-control? Do you understand that? Okay, number six. When you study, linger longer for a better life impact from the Bible. Context, context, context. Stay in the context longer. Linger there for a long time. Now, I'm going to make the case for this, guys, and then I'm going to, I'll, I'll illustrate it, okay? This actually expands on number five, the relationship between interpretation and application. 
But, but serious readers and studiers of the Bible are really after something important and something good. Okay? Um, serious Christians are looking for life change. They're looking for life-impacting interaction with the Bible. They're looking for an encouragement to come from the Bible that will speak to them in whatever situation that they're in in their life facing currently. Okay? Um, a mom who's just wrestling at home with how the one particular child is just going off the rails. I mean, when she opens her Bible in the morning, she is like desperate to meet with God so that he can speak into that because there has to be an impact from guys. That is right. That is good. How you do that sometimes can really mess things up though. We need to be more careful as we think that through for you, you lose a job. And you're like, all of a sudden, you're scratching and clawing for anything that from God in his word that will help you to just hold on. Because you've never been in this situation before in your life. And you're just, I mean, you're just clawing at this. Guys, that's, I'm, I'm affirming that desire, that desire to be with God in his word. But how we get to those necessary applications and implications for a living, guys, is everything. How you do that is everything. We shouldn't get to those life-impacting encouragements by doing violence to the meaning of the text. Okay? Do you understand what I just said? And this is especially where we need self-control as we read and as we interpret Scripture. It is possible, guys, it is possible. I've seen it in my own life and I watch it in, in believers around me. It is possible to get in such a rush to experience a life-changing impact from the words that we're reading and race through those holy words and phrases and clauses, hastily looking for that which feels good for life impact. It's possible to do that. And the problem is we can arrive at a really feel-good moment. Ah, oh, the, the Word of God is so great, just gave me everything I needed just for that moment. And we can walk away from that. We arrive at a feel-good impact in an illegitimate way with God's words. It's possible for hurried, desperate readers to walk away from the Bible feeling good about the life impact they feel from what they just read, but for God to not be satisfied with how his words were just handled. Do you understand that? It's possible for you to walk away very satisfied with how you feel about what just happened in the Bible, but God not be satisfied with the way that his words were just handled. I mean, to put it back on you, how do you want people to interact with your words? You want them to get everything that they should get from your words, but they got to do it the right way, don't they? Or does just sincerity matter? So what's the solution? Train yourself to design. Guys, this is really hard. We've been, we've been taught that, ah, maybe not taught, that's maybe too strong. We've been trained either by ourselves or by our evangelical culture that until this word on this page makes me feel good, that it probably, until that point, is something lesser than it is what if the point of that passage that you're reading and studying um, really doesn't have a whole lot to do with you and how you feel but it's just saying something about the God of the Bible and the impact that that will make on how you feel comes at a different way it 
comes longer? What if it comes later? Guys, we just have to be really careful. Um, th- there was a there was a, a a really bad way of thinking in liberal Christianity a while ago that said um, it doesn't become the word of God until I say so. So there there are the words in this book, but it becomes the Bible when all of a sudden, bing, ah, the lights came on. Now, now it's the Bible. And you know what? We've got our own weird, really bad way of doing that. That if you read your Bible and you walk away going, I don't know, I just didn't really feel something. We have to be really careful about what we think about what that was. I mean, what this is, is about God. And how it impacts me, I may not see readily, but I've got to be really careful about how it impacts me. And that falls in my court. I have to control myself on how to get there, okay? So train yourself, guys, first to desire this. To desire the true meaning of a passage before any life impact takes place from the passage. Guys, train yourself to desire the meaning first before you desire any life impact from it. Because life impact cannot come to you apart from the meaning. You can't do violence to the meaning just to get to the life impact. So train yourself, control yourself to desire to know the true meaning first and then get to life impact. Okay? Discipline yourself to not just want any kind of a good, feel-good life impact from God's word that isn't truly connected to the original intent that God has in the text. That means you need to stay there longer to figure out, okay, what's going on here? What does this really mean? Doing so by staying there longer, it actually may delay that getting that scratch of that itch that you really want scratched. You need to get scratched. You've got an itch, and it needs to get scratched. Hear me say, I want you to get scratched. You've got to get to it the right way, at the right time, without doing violence to the meaning of the text. Okay, so here we go. Turn to Jeremiah 29. Turn to Jeremiah 29.11. And we're going to acknowledge something that is... By the way, guys, Jeremiah 29, 11, it better impact your life. It has to. Does it not? And here's what we need to be careful in making fun of how Christians think about Jeremiah 29, 11, is we can walk away going, well, that has absolutely nothing to do with me. Well, you're right. It doesn't initially. But how it has to do with you is the important thing. There are some verses in your Bible that they don't even have to work you don't even have to work for it to just go, man, that feels good. This is one of those. Okay, Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. I know the plans I have for you, right? Declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. I mean, you read those kinds of words and you just go, man, I've got all I need for the day. I do. Right? You don't even have to work. It just feels good to hear that. All right? Now, back up to verse 1. These are the words of the letter which Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the rest of the elders of the exile, the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the court officials, the princes of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the smiths had departed from Jerusalem. 
It was sent by the hand of these guys here. Verse 4, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I've sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So here's actually the words. Build houses and live in them and plant gardens and eat the produce. Now, why don't Christians run to verse 5 as much as they run to verse 11? Anybody here plant a garden? Who's built a house lately? So why are we all excited about verse 11? It's part of the same words, but we're not doing verse 5. Well, that doesn't feel as good. I mean, I read that and I I don't feel anything about vegetables. Just take wives and become the fathers of sons and daughters. Oh, anybody do that? In light of this, give your daughters to husbands. Anybody marry their daughters off yet? That they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Where's the there, by the way? Multiply there. Where is that? Babylon. Babylon. And do not do, seek the welfare of the city um, where I've sent you into exile. By the way, that's not Tempe because God did not send us into exile here. It's, it's Babylon. It's wherever they are. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you have the welfare, you will have welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets who are in your midst and your diviners deceive you. Have we identified who the prophets and the diviners are among us who are deceiving us? I mean, we are so selective. And boy, would that bug you if anybody took one of your statements and yanked it out from the rest of what you said? Would that bother you at a board meeting? At a parent-teacher conference? Would that bother you? I mean, I hope it would bother you. How much more so should it bother us when that happens with God's word? It's an illegitimate way to get at something that feels good. Do you guys get what I'm saying? I know the plans that I have for you. This uh, verse is often quoted as if it were a general promise to all believers. But as you can tell, guys, even from a cursory examination of chapter 29, this is a part of a letter that Jeremiah sent to the Jews in exiled Babylon. You read a little bit further, you find that the promise was a part of God's plan to restore the nation of Israel in the future. The ones to whom Jeremiah was writing in a specific situation, the exile and the promised restoration back to the land, that's what limits the meaning of the verse. It's definitely not a sweeping promise that believers will have an easy and calamity-free passage through life. By the way, did you know that the guy writing this did not experience the plans for welfare and not for calamity? Do you know that he was persecuted and killed? Never had anybody, as far as we can tell, even believe anything he said. Thrown in prison, he was kidnapped, he was martyred for his faithful preaching. That verse did not apply to him. But we're going to make it apply to all of us? Like that? You know what the other one is? For Christians, all you got to do is go into a Christian high school and go into the locker room, and as you come out the door, just look above the door. You know what's written above the door? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And you know what's funny is the other Christian team they're playing has that on their locker room, and they just walked out too. Lingering longer clarifies this guy. Stay there a little bit longer. Quickly skimming a passage like this one because we're just eager to arrive at a feel-good, life-changing impact that positions us to actually miss the the intended meaning entirely. 
Legitimate applications. Legitimate applications can never exist without the solid interpretation underneath it. Okay? That takes more time than you might think you need in a passage. So slow down. And guys, let me just say it to you this way. What if God primarily wants you As you read those important words to Israel in exile long ago, what if he primarily wants you to just marvel in worship at his goodness and his kindness to an ancient people who were anything but deserving of such treatment for God? What if that's why it's there? That you would just marvel that God did this. God was this way with this kind of people a long time ago. God, you're great. What kind of God are you? Here I am sitting in 2017. And I'm marveling at the way that my God was with his disobedient kids long ago. Man, what a life impact that is. My God is that way. Yeah, I'm ready to go to work today with that. In other words, do those words only take on life impact when I write myself into the passage? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. When I write myself into that, in that situation now, is there life impact? That way, guys, are just illegitimate ways to get to life impact. Okay? Self-control and discipline is needed. And I would say this, guys. You may need to train your tastes to a new taste. If you've been tasting Christianity that way, and if your interaction with the Bible has been that way, and you've just kind of trained yourself to taste that, I'm just going to tell you honestly, you need to change the way you taste. You need to develop a new taste. You need to want the life impact a different way. You're going to get to the life impact, but you've got to learn to taste it in a different way and want it when you get in another way. It doesn't come through a microwave. It comes through smoking the meat for a long time. Uh, it does you will not be disappointed with what you taste when you get there we'll all find that out tomorrow by the way I only meant one thing with that statement I didn't mean two things in your mind taste and see that the Lord is good (laughs) something like that okay but guys, this all, it needs to happen the right way, and it needs to happen uh, with an honorable use of God's words. You'll be far more satisfied by the legitimate application that arises from the proper interpretation. And you want God glorified in how you handle his word, don't you? Okay, number seven. Read grammar and syntax, or I'm sorry, not read. Give grammar and syntax more weight in interpretational decisions. Grammar is, is how words are connected and related together. Or that syntax is how they're put together. Grammar is how they just function in a sentence. Uh, They're part of speech, things like that. Um, Notice this is number seven for you guys and not number one. You you understand enough about how grammar works without even realizing you know how it works. Um, Some of this is just intuitive. Uh, When trying to communicate what's inside of us, here's what we don't do. We don't select the top four or five words that describe our inward thought and then just simply put them in a list form. There used to be this old game when I was a kid on TV called Password. Some of you who are older will know it. Um, Password. So one guy, uh, one part of the team gets a little card and there's a word on it. And that person's trying to get their teammate to say the word, but they can't. I can't say the word. So 
the person is all quiet and the person says like um, breathing and the partner can't get it and so he says another word sleeping doesn't get it so he says noisy still doesn't get it says annoying ah snoring yes ding 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 and you find out what the word is right that's not how we communicate we don't communicate by a list of words. Uh, that would communicate something of what's inside of us, right? But that's not how meaning is conveyed. Language does not convey meaning merely at the individual word level. Meaning is rooted in the sentence level with grammar and how the words are connected together. We learn at an early age to do that, to connect our words together, arranging them thoughtfully so that the meaning that we intend to communicate comes forth most clearly. We say something like this instead. Something that's really annoying is noisy breathing during sleep that is called snoring. That's how we learn to say it. We don't say uh, annoying Noisy. We, we just don't communicate that way. That's not how it works. Okay? Uh, when all of our words are considered in their relationship to one another, from, from the seemingly most insignificant words in a sentence to the most colorful and descriptive words, that's how our meaning is conveyed and we are understood. And listen, guys, a verse in Scripture does not say more or less than what the rules of language make it say. And the meaning we intend through our words, the meaning that God intends through his words is bound up in grammar and in syntax, how they're all put together. Grammar rules like subject-verb agreement. Boy, I'll tell you one of the biggest and most important ones to think about is pronouns. If, if Paul starts at some point and he's using you, plural, and then all of a sudden says we, in it, you should notice that. Because now what he's saying about we may not be equal to what he's saying to the you. Or if it's us and them, when do you ever communicate and when you're talking about us or who's with you, and then all of a sudden you say them, when do you ever communicate and you mean the same thing for them that you mean for you? The reason you do a pronoun change is because you're wanting to show a, a line of distinction between. So just simple things like that. So the more familiar that you can be with grammar and syntax, the clearer that the meaning will be in the passage that you're reading. So discipline yourself in this, guys, a little bit. Stretch yourself a little bit where you can and learn a little bit more about grammar and God's word. And it's going to unfold to you uh, the, the meaning in, in the text in even more significant ways. So anyway, would love for you just to give some more thought to that. Number eight, be careful with a word's meaning. Be careful with a word's meaning. At the proper place and time, it's appropriate to isolate words in your reading of Scripture in order to define them accurately. As you do this, keep in mind the historical appropriateness and definitions that you seek. One of the greatest dangers that a Bible reader or studier can uh, step into is reading a modern day view of a word back into an ancient biblical context. Let me give you an example. Um, you're reading in Ephesians uh, 6 and you see something mentioned about slaves and you take in your mind everything that you know about American slavery in the 1800s and prior and you import it into the Bible. And you make what Paul said equal, equal to everything that it was in our experience as a nation. Are there similarities? There are. Are they equal? No. Because in the first century in Roman 
world, you, you could be a, you would sell yourself into slavery and you could make a really good living. And it's what most of the people did. Um, and it wasn't the same. And it was for many exactly the same. They were abused horribly, treated as property, left along the side of the road if they were sick to die. It's terrible, but it's not equal. So you have to be careful to do that. Let me give you another example. By the way, that's called totality transfer. That's the technical term for it. Totality transfer. You totally transfer from another century's meaning uh, of a word into a first century um, word. Um, Think about how the way our culture today uses the word grace. What do they mean when they say, that was so graceful? What do they mean? It means they were watching ice skating and they watched this graceful move. Now imagine you go to them and you say to them, listen, I just want you to understand what it means to be saved. For by grace, you are saved through faith. You're going to have to help them understand what the word grace means because they're going to take what they think grace is and they're going to, by grace? So I have to like live a graceful life? Like a ballerina or something? I mean, what, what does that mean? They don't even know. So key words within the passage, you need to think about those as well. Just don't totally transfer a meaning from a culture into another, uh, into the context on the page of, uh, of your Bible. Um, there's lots of good tools you can use that are available. We have good tools in our library, in our office. You can do that and learn what a Bible word means. Um, let me give you some example of uh, a word's meaning and how it's determined by its context. Um, or how a word usually doesn't have one rigid meaning that must occur in every context. Here's, in fact, I'll, I'll give you the most recent example. If you were in the service on Sunday, the word justification is not a word that uh, means exactly and only the one thing every single time in whatever context it's in. It, because um, in in salvation context, justification is a de- a putting forth as righteous that is connected only with faith and no works at all. But in a judgment context, it is a putting forth of as right in connection only with works. And if you approach your Bible as if no justification is only the salvation one and you get to a judgment context, you're toast. Toast. Because now you're going to try to figure out what on earth. Paul just contradicted himself. Because he said you will be justified on the basis of what you do. Well, in judgment context, but not in salvation. Let me give you another example. Go to Galatians 5. We'll do this one quick. With the word flesh. Galatians 5, verse 16. The flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. These are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. These are the deeds of the flesh, verses 19 and following. Um, Verse 16, even backing up, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Look over at verse 24. Now, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh. The flesh is bad. John chapter 1, the word became... (gasps) What? That's bad. I mean, didn't you just see that? So what does that tell you? Flesh has more than one meaning. And what gets to determine what the, how it's being used? Context. Flesh can also just mean uh, this stuff, humanity. But it also can mean something really sinful. 
right? So context gets to determine that. Another good example is the word, the phrase fear of the Lord in Psalm 19. Uh, the fear of the Lord is, is taken there as a synonym um, in verse 9 as the word of God. His statutes, his ordinances, the, and he says the fear of the Lord is clean. So it's, an, it's a synonym with the word of God. So what the author intended in a specific context, that determines what a word means. Okay, not other contexts. Don't, here's, here's what you don't want to do. Oh, here's how, how does this word work? Justification in James chapter two. Oh, let me show you. Turn over to Romans chapter three. Don't do that. Because that's, that's, that, that may not be true. What's going on even in the Bible might not be, that, that might not be the way it's being used from one context to the next. Stay on the page, don't go someplace else, linger longer, do all that good stuff. Number nine, compare and contrast your passage with other passages. But you've got to do it carefully. There's an important balance to maintain when you read scripture. The Bible was written over a period of 1,500 years by more than 30 different authors. Isn't that amazing? And yet the Bible agrees amazingly so with itself. Or maybe not so amazingly when you consider the divine author God. Because scripture was breathed forth by God who knows everything and he never lies. The Bible never contradicts itself. It never does. Just because the one author of scripture never disagreed with himself from one passage to the next. That doesn't mean though that every single passage has to say the exact same thing exactly the same way. The unity of the Bible doesn't demand that each passage have exactly the same meaning so that it all doesn't contradict itself. That's why you have to be careful when you cross-reference. Because if you think that the way you're going to prove this meaning is what it is by turning to another one, the other writer of Scripture, human writer, may not be trying to make the same argument, and yet it's still in agreement with itself. You have to be careful when you cross-reference. Each passage needs to speak for itself, and then it just needs to be lined up with each other passage that speaks for itself. And the conclusions you draw from the two, now you've got to figure out what that harmony is in them, right? So we avoid the practice of taking our conclusions from one passage and forcing it into every other passage just to harmonize them. Okay? You have to be careful with that. Study of the word justification is a good way to think about that. I know what justification means. It only means this, and it can only be that in my mind because I just love being declared righteous on the basis of faith alone, apart from any good works. And so anytime I see that word, I'm just going to put that into every single passage where I see it because that is, that's what's going on, and that's my way of harmonizing the Bible. Well, what do you do when you get to the Gospels and you find out that wisdom is vindicated by her deeds? Wisdom is declared righteous on the basis of faith alone, apart from works. What? The word can be used in different contexts. You have to harmonize the scriptures the right way. That You don't have to harmonize them. They are harmonized. You have to notice the harmony in the right way. Okay? Um, we're almost done, guys. You compare passages with each other, but you do it carefully. By the way, do you notice where the step of interpretation is on the list? It's number nine. It's towards the end. You don't want to do this first. Okay, just the, the goal, if you could take like a, you know the clips that you have that can clip papers together? Or like a little pressure clip thing? Open your Bible to where you're studying and clip one side here. Okay? And then take a big one and clip this other side over here. And make it so that you can't turn the page for a long time. Just stay there. Does that drive you crazy to think about that? 
just stay there. What do you like people to do with your words? Stay there. Just stay there. You can tr- this is, look. This page is really deep. I know you think it's like you dip your toe in, you're going to touch the bottom. I know you. I know you think that sometimes, but it's not. You can't find the bottom, even on this page. So don't turn the page. Lastly, number ten. Prayerfully contemplate what you've just read. Now we're going to bring it all the way back around. Step number one was prayer. Step number ten is prayer. And by the way, there could be fifty steps in between. Um, I'm just making it ten. Um, when you're done studying, when you're done reading, prayerfully contemplate what you just read. Talk to God again at the end of your reading and studying about what he revealed to you. What did you learn about the meaning of the passage you read? You know what? If, if, you, if you study the passage and you looked at its meaning and, and its meaning didn't appear to have really like any connection, like I'm, I'm going through, um, I'm reading through numbers right now and I'm underlining over and over uh, where... Um, just as the Lord commanded Moses, Moses, they did according to all Moses command. I just thought I'm underlining that and I'm underlining that. And that's Israel. And there's tribes named again and listed again and all the people listed and what they're doing. Um, when you get to like a passage like that and that meaning doesn't jump, it seemed to like have a really click, quick, clear connection to your own life but you're just reading about how they were obedient to what they were supposed to do. Um, just talk to God about that. God, this is what you meant. I'm so impressed with your word. And you know what's weird, God? I can understand it. I understand this. What a miracle from you that you have worked in my life in such a way that I, I worship you that I understand your meaning. Your meaning is, 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 is exciting there. And I walk away and I'm like, I, I don't, I, I mean, I have ideas of my connections I'm making, how important obedience is. God, help me to be obedient today. Right, But just talk to him about what you're learning about the meaning of the passage. Learn to just praise God for his meaning in a text. When God reveals his mind in scripture, shouldn't that awe us? He re- God, you revealed yourself there. I have no idea what connection it has with me right now. But it's amazing because you are amazing. When God reveals his thoughts to us through his words, we need to pause and just simply rejoice and worship that we understood those thoughts. I think Christians think that that's, no, 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 what the exciting stuff is, is when I feel good about what I read. Guys, that's narcissistic. It's just narcissistic. What if you read and, and you just marvel at who God is? So what did you learn about his character as you read? What is he like? What is he not like? Prayerfully worship him for that. What did you learn about your sin and rebellion? Well, man, you're watching uh, the Israelites grumble in the wilderness. Ah. Uh, What does that reveal about what's going on in your own heart? How will your life change in light of righteousness that you saw lived out by Caleb and Joshua, who didn't complain and who defended the Lord and his promises? What what impact does that have? What will be your plan to revisit what you've studied? You know, how am I going to come back to this throughout the day so that I don't just forget this in the morning when I am done? Um, So there's 10 ways to study the Bible a little bit more uh, diligently, carefully. Guys, if you want to have an opportunity to learn how to do that, let me tell you, uh, number one, make sure that you are what you need to be in the build disciplines. Be the right kind of man. Shepherd your heart with the word of God to know the God of the word. Step into your home and care for your family and your household well there. Step into the lives of people in the church and minister there. 
uh, as, as is appropriate. And um, if all of that is going well and you want to learn more about how this kind of works, uh, then you need to talk to SMED about the trust. Okay? If you do build disciplines well and you want to learn more about this, you want to, you want to let the rubber meet the road, that's what the trust is all about. Lots of um, study and theology over the next year when that starts up, but also assigning you a passage and you get to practice these things. And like they're going to do this next weekend, all the guys who are in the trust, they're going to go up and they're going to preach their 20-minute sermons to each other. Um, and guys, I would only encourage, how many here have done that? Who, who's done the trust before? Look, they're all alive. The ones who are here, they did it and they survived. Yeah. Of course, the ones who died doing it couldn't raise their hands. But we won't tell you who those people are so you don't know about them. Uh, but anyway, I just encourage you to think about that. Talk to Smet about that. Talk to Scott about that. Talk to me about it. Okay? Let's pray, and then we'll get you guys out of here. Father, thank you so much for these men. Thank you for your Bible. Help us to think carefully about your Bible. Lord, I pray that we would put you at the center of your words and that we would not put ourselves at the center of your words. Lord, it's such an, an easy uh, step for us to make us, to write ourselves into your word in ways that is just just not helpful. It's not honoring to you, but Lord, may we um, draw the right kind of conclusions about ourselves as we look at you in your word. Um, Lord, we need to have our lives impacted by your word. We must change. We must become better worshipers and better followers of your son, Jesus. But Lord, we want to get there the right way without doing violence to your text. We, we expect others to abide by that. Lord, help us to um, abide by that ourselves with your words. And we ask for this help in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, guys.